Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Greasters. I hope you're having an okay week wherever you're listening. Uh, if you're listening in the what is it northern hemisphere (laughs) yeah the top bit um it's winter it's getting cold we've got christmas and hanukkah and solstice approaching us so um yeah it's maybe a time of year where you're having a little more time to think i guess is how i'm feeling like you know nights drawing in and stuff and you get a little bit more thoughtful at this time of year a little bit more internal so i hope wherever you are you are able to light a candle and give yourself some time This week, I'm talking to the extraordinary Sarah Seeger. Now, Sarah is, let me get this right, (laughs) Sarah is an astrophysicist and planetary scientist at MIT. So yeah, she is an extraordinary person. One of her jobs is to find exoplanets on the edge of the universe. Yeah, that's a job, that's what she does. Uh, She wrote an incredible book. It's called The Smallest Lights in the Universe. It's a memoir, and I can't recommend it enough, actually. it's really interesting to read a book that doesn't about grief that isn't focusing sort of on the minutiae that from someone who literally spends their life looking at the entire galaxy so you know a lot of what we write about grief is very personal and and the book is personal but yeah she's sort of coming to it from a lens of someone who is aware of the edge of the universe so I found it really really compelling and, and just a really beautiful read um, and I would I would really recommend it, even if you don't know anything, as I didn't particularly about astrophysics. It's um it's not complicated. You could definitely follow it. Sarah came in to talk to me about her husband, who passed away when she was forty, leaving her as a young widow with two small boys. So Sarah, I always start the show by asking this: Who are we remembering today? Well, we're remembering my first husband, Mike. Mike. But 
since you remembered your dad as well, mm-hmm. I'm so attached to my dad. In fact, I just dreamed about him last night. Oh, wow. So it would be nice to remember both of them. Yeah. What was your dad's name? His name was David, and he David. actually was from the UK. He grew oh, up really? in London, was born and grew up in London until he was in his 20s. He wow. moved to Canada. He always wanted to live in America, the land of opportunity. And he mm-hmm. was pleased when I finally moved here and made my life here. Amazing. Well, yeah, we can remember absolutely both Mike and David today. Um, and then, you know, I would add all my pets. <laughs> no, <laughs> my cat, I had this wonderful cat, Minnie Mae. She was, I got her when I was 23 years old and she lived until I was 40 through oh, yeah. all major life events, you know, so many deaths, births. Yeah. And it's hard to say goodbye no matter who or when. Oh gosh, absolutely. And it's funny because I I should start by saying the book is incredible. I absolutely loved it. I just, so, so interesting. And actually you talk about all those griefs in it, but I hadn't quite connected it because obviously there is a main thread which is talking about Mike. But I was like, oh yeah, you do mention Minnie Mae and your dad and everything. And it is a a book sort of talking about grief and loss, but in in a really massive perspective (laughs) because you're an astrophysicist and Often I speak to people who their perspective is very, very personal, obviously, you know, very contained within their family or their community. But this book's the first book I've read where it's like somebody not just talking about, hey, this is how English people grieve. You're like, this is the earth talking about the, the, the space. It just seemed like we zoomed out so far, which I found so interesting. Do you think that affected your grief at all? Like being an astrophysicist, being a being so aware of how tiny we are involved in, in comparison to everything? I'd say yes and no at the same time. Mm. I mean, it's so hard when you're grieving to do anything other than just get through the day sometimes. Yeah, that's And whether that's with tears or without, you know, it's just a, a chore. Yeah. But yes, I'd say definitely when I could step back and think of the stars and you know, every star out there is the sun and all those suns out there have planets just like ours does. And imagine that, that there are trillions and trillions of planets in our own Milky Way galaxy alone. And it definitely puts things in perspective because, you know, our earth will be here for a good long time, like no matter how we trash it. And so no matter what happens to you or I, and so it definitely gives perspective. It doesn't always help, let's say, but it, it gives perspective. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a really good way of putting it. it of course, because nothing takes the grief away. You know, you, you can rationalize, you know, all sorts of things. Oh, they were a good age or I got to say goodbye to them. There's so many things that right. maybe help a little bit, but grief is grief. It doesn't stop it being painful. So should we talk about Mike? What happened with Mike? How did he die? Well, the first thing I want to say is he had a stomach ache that wouldn't mm. go away. Mm. And it's kind of a common theme now, if you read, you know, now with Twitter and like more public social media, people share their stories. And I see this over and over again, and wow. I'll try to not get angry here, but sure. basically the, the scene is you have a problem you think is unusual and you approach your doctor and say, I've got a problem. And they say, no, 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 that's just normal. And in his case, they just said, you know, you're just constipated here, take Metamucil. So it's kind of funny if you think of your grandparents taking Metamucil or, you know, someone really old who's taking Metamucil every day Mm. so they can have regular bowel movements. Well, I don't think you get all of a sudden into that place in your forties. Just don't think that sounds right. But then the doctors are like, well, we'll wait and see. And so he didn't just have a stomach ache. He had an intestinal blockage. Okay. And some months later, it was so bad. He couldn't, nothing could go in in his body, nothing could go down to his stomach, nothing could go out. 
and he was incapacitated. And what's interesting is we just thought he had a really bad case of the flu, Mm. but no one else in our family was sick. And this happened once a week for three weeks. And apparently what had been happening was the blockage would resolve a tiny bit. Like it would just, you know, get porous enough so food could go through. Yeah. And then he'd get sick and stay in bed again, letting it resolve again. And finally, I called the doctor on the weekend and he's like, he needs to go to the emergency room. And it turned out this blockage ended up being, just to fast forward, it ended up being cancer and it ended up being stage three cancer, which means it's already spread. And to make it even worse, it turned out he had Crohn's disease, which is a treatable problem. And people with untreated Crohn's, they're far more likely than the average population to get an intestinal blockage and for that intestinal blockage to become cancerous. So the whole thing was preventable. That's really hard. It's hard, but it's a common story. That's why I want everyone to know about this. If you have a little tweak or something's a little off and your doctor doesn't listen, try to go to a different doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You, you wrote about that very eloquently in the book and I, and I felt rightly your fury at that point. And um, it's obviously interesting reading as an English person when you have, you know, we have the NHS and I, or whenever I read American things and, and the idea of you know, someone who is your doctor being, you know, you can go and see different doctors here, but it's a very, it's a very different system. And I could feel, you know, if you, I just felt your frustration at what had happened with someone. Who right. Was, but a lot of it's on us individually, like in, <clears throat> yeah. in Mike's case, it turned out for years, he had, he knew he had something wrong because after he died, uh, you know, sometimes you learn a lot more about a person after they die. But yeah. I was sorting through all his stuff and he had a Merck manual. Merck, the pharmaceutical company. And mm-hmm. this manual is like a dictionary for medical things. And there was a page flagged for, it's like an infectious disease of the stomach. Like there okay. were, you know, he clearly knew that something had been going on. Wow. He had had himself tested about seven times for Giardia, which is wow. a- The parasite, isn't it? Yeah. It's a parasite yeah. you get from drinking lake water or stream water. And we had spent a lot of time in the outdoors. So he knew he had something weird happening, but it wasn't enough to for him to investigate in a more formal way yeah so I think the answer is listen to your body and try to try to follow up yeah yes absolutely and and especially I know so much of the advice around cancer my dad died of cancer as well and um pancreatic cancer and oh my gosh my dad died of pancreatic cancer as well yes of course that came up yes and which again is is um it's brutal because once you have pancreatic cancer for most people your time's basically up. Yeah. Yeah. Because, it, and that's what happened to him. So it didn't show that it was in the liver. And right. That's right. Same with mine. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. Because the pancreas, you know, unlike your arm or leg or lungs, like there's no feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So when something goes wrong there, there's no way to know about it. Actually. That's yeah. the problem with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Which is why the survival rates are so terrible because obviously it doesn't right. really show up till, till, till it's, it's too spread. late. Till yeah. It's already. And he was, yeah, he was diagnosed in February and then dead by the April. Um, right. It's, it's typically like three months. Yeah. Yeah. I met someone once who'd survived it and I, my jaw nearly dropped like to the floor. <laughs> I was like, wow. What? But there's Did that two... person have surgery? Did they have surgery? Well, what I've discovered from working with pancreatic cancer charities here, like PC UK is there's actually two types of pancreatic tumors and one of them is survivable one of them really really isn't I see. and that that's they've now discovered by lots of you know research that if you have the one that isn't as um what's the word I guess like strong as it won't spread as quickly you, you can have surgery and you can survive it but if you have the one that isn't it's very difficult for anyone to even know it's there but yeah I met him at like a pancreatic cancer event and I was just 
I was like staring at him. <laughs> he was like, oh, I'm from the survivors charity. And I was like, uh, what? Oh, how? <laughs> like, poor guy I was like, <laughs> because yeah, I'd never ever met anyone who'd survived it. So yeah, there are, they are doing amazing work on it, but yeah, it's a really, really brutal one. And um, so with Mike, once you found out, you know, it was cancer, what was it again, like a rapid deterioration? How did you, cause I know you have children as well. How was right, that? Right, right. Well, the funny thing is that being scientific, I followed up the scientific literature. Mm. And at the time, a family friend worked at a company called Up to Date. I highly recommend this for people who feel like they can tackle something challenging, but Up to Date okay. hires doctors to write review articles, summaries of the most recent description of the condition and treatment. And I read through all of that and I found like one of the few doctors in the world who studied small intestine cancer. And I read his papers. I even contacted him at some point. And that paper said the, even though hardly anyone gets it, it's very rare. So it's hard to get statistics on it. It said 18 months from diagnosis to death is the median or the average, let's mm. say. And that's exactly what it was for him. Wow. But Mike was ever the optimist. <laughs> so if the doctor said one thing, by the next day, he was saying a different thing. Right. So when the doctor told him, you know, this is spread already, it's in your lymph nodes, which means if it's in your lymph nodes, it's circulating around your entire body. Yeah. And Mike would say, hey, this isn't too bad. I might be able to beat this. Mm. And it was a rough journey because when you have cancer, it's a roller coaster. Yeah. And you're getting chemotherapy. Then you're waiting for your next set of scans. And for us, at every turn, it was a huge negative. You mm. know, when there's a fork in the road, it was always the worst. And I remember one time we were getting, he was getting the scan and it was right before Christmas and the doctor didn't want to give us the results. Wow. We're like, we need the results. And so he said, well, the tumors haven't changed after this round of chemotherapy. And initially we were elated. We're like, this is awesome. We, we got this. <laughs> Because we didn't understand that if yeah. the tumor hasn't shrunk after chemotherapy, you're basically dead. Yeah. So we like had a pretty nice holiday until we met with the doctor again. And I suppose he hadn't wanted to deliver the bad news, how bad the news was, actually. I can't remember all the sequence of events now, but honestly, it went from bad to worse. And then it wasn't just that the tumors hadn't shrunk, but then it had spread to other parts of his body. And that meant he was terminal. And even then, by the way, he wasn't thinking he was terminally ill. He's like, okay, this is fine. We're going to do well. And one night it was just so sad. I'll cry because I had to. I literally just said, you know, we're getting a second opinion tomorrow about a different type of treatment. But, you know, do you want to hear the truth from me or do you want to wait till tomorrow when we see this second opinion doctor? And he said, well, I guess I should hear it from you. But in fact, he had already heard it mm. from the doctor, his original doctor, but he just couldn't. He couldn't accept initially that he was dying. He was in this huge denial. And I don't think it was unique to him. I think that's human nature. We want to survive. Yeah. And he told me he actually joined a support group. And one of the people who had cancer survived. And he had like treatment that was so harsh, it nearly killed him, the treatment itself. And Mike was just like, I want that treatment. I'm going to do that. And it was like, that treatment's not going to work for you. You don't have that cancer, yeah. you have different cancer, and we're out of options. And the whole thing was just incredibly depressing. It's so hard. And, and I, can, I can very much relate to that because my dad was the same. He was in complete denial. And even when we were in the hospital, which 
like, you know, he'd gone into hospital because my mum, we couldn't cope at home. You know, I was, me and my brother were teenagers and he'd basically gone there to die. And he was still saying to us, right, next week, when I get out, we're going to go to Boston. He had some business in Boston. He was like, I'm going to get this plane. And we were sat there like. Well, you want to support him, right? Yeah, but you just don't In my case, I wanted to support him initially. And like my husband, he never dressed up. He had one suit that he inherited from his late father that fit him perfectly. And he decided he needed a new suit. It's sort of like a shout out against death. Like I'm going to survive. And then I didn't say, well, look, I could kind of use the money after you die. It's like, okay, great. Let's, (laughs) let's get the suit. And you sort of go along with it for a while and, you know, try to express your frustrations to someone else. Yeah. But eventually you do have to help the person confront death. Yeah, that's definitely what my mum had to do. Definitely. I think because I was the kid in that situation, I found it much more like, I don't know what's going on. Like, because it's hard for kids, especially teenagers, you know, for little kids, they're a little bit more self-centered and they're a little more out of it. And they do bounce back. I think if you think throughout history, how many parents have died and little kids get adopted. So I think that teenagers, it's especially rough. But the saddest thing was when he finally acknowledged that he went down to the children's room who shared a room at the time and they were pretty young. And he just said, well, my greatest regret will not be seeing them grow up. Mm. And I was like, wow, he's finally got it. He's finally understanding how serious this is. Did that help afterwards? Were you able to kind of connect in a better way once he did accept it or was it just as painful? Well, there were just so many hard things. It was just, yeah. okay, now that hard thing is solved. Let's move on to the next hard thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah I like, don't know, but I- Oh, you've got it. Great. But you're st- this person's still going to die. Like that doesn't change anything, does it? Yeah, I can no. I can see that. But I think it may have helped him. It's hard to say. I think yeah. he was able to face it better. Mm, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a really, really difficult thing. A really so difficult what thing. about your story? Did your dad ever- no, not really. No, <laughs> I think it might be better that way in some ways yeah. to keep yourself isolated from. from I don't the struggle. know. I think it's it's probably better for him. It's harder to better be, for him uh, right, right. for us. I think because we never got to because if someone never accepts it, you never get to have that conversation where you can be like, okay, we now know you're dying. So, and then what happened was he just wouldn't accept it, and then he got so ill he was on very hardcore right. drugs. So he, he right, right. then couldn't really speak, and then it was sort of he was very out of it to, towards the end. And I say because it was so quick, you know, by the time he was in hospital, I think I guess he'd only he'd had some chemo, he'd only been ill for like eight weeks. Do you know what I mean? So he right. really was just like it's not happening. Honestly, um, it probably was hard for you, but better for him. We debate yeah, often, just yeah. you know. There's not a competition or anything, but no, no. is it better to die suddenly, like in the bicycle accident or have the short cancer so you can hopefully yeah. face it and say goodbye? Or is it better to have it drawn out so you could live for 10 years? Yeah. There's really no good way. No. And I, I because obviously I interview so many people for this show and everybody who's on the like sudden death is always like, oh, but you got to say goodbye. And everyone on the cancer terminal illness is like, but somebody was in agonizing pain and they couldn't say goodbye. Like there's, there's no... I think you imagine it's nice to imagine there's a better way of dying, but actually it's, it's dying. It's not fun. Um, so once, once you realize, and obviously he became very, very sick, were you with him when he died? I was. Yeah. And we were able to do home hospice because in, it may be a stereotype for you, but in America, we can have very big houses. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The house was separated enough so that he could be in a room that you know, I didn't want, I wanted the children to know we were taking care of him at home. 
And I wanted them to know he was dying at home, but I didn't want them to have to like pass by his room or see him on a, you know, see him on a daily basis. Yeah. And it was able, you know, I, part of it was selfish because I wanted to spend a lot of time with him, but I knew that having children who are ages six and eight years old, that I wouldn't be able to keep all the balls in the air. Like if I had to be with him all the time at the hospice, who's going to take care of the children? Yeah. Yeah. So I just, um, it was actually better that way. It was fantastic. I'd say, you know, people, you may hear your friends or people out there writing stories about the perfect birth. Like, oh, I had natural childbirth without meds and my baby was perfect, blah, blah. Actually, I did have natural childbirth. (laughs) Um, It wasn't perfect, but it was fantastic. And I feel so proud of myself that I was able to help Mike have what I think is the perfect death. Mm. Like he died at home. There were no tubes. It was so peaceful. I think, (laughs) I hope it was peaceful for him. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very beautiful thing. It's amazing if you can. I've never thought about that before. Actually, a lot of my American guests have said they did home hospice. And I've never occurred to me that, yeah, you have large houses. So there is that option. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, obviously not everyone does. But yeah, that option, which... um, yeah, it's tricky because, of course, especially with children, you don't you want them to be aware of it, but not so aware of it that it's, you know, traumatic, especially when they're when they're younger. And how many years ago did he die? Sorry, I forgot to ask. A long it. time, actually. It was over 10 years ago. Ten but years. some things I can still remember, like yesterday, like one yeah. day Mike came home and he said his doctor said, no, you shouldn't die at home. You have kids at home. And I just got so angry because I was like, what lesson does that teach our children? Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. That we want to just dump him off somewhere so he can die. Also that death I'm like, exist. no, we want to teach like, them that, yeah, death is natural and that yeah. we want to take care of him and love him until the day he dies. Yeah. And then it it, ha- it happens. Death happens. You can't hide. Like they right. will eventually find out what has <laughs> no. happened to their dad. And in my house, you know, at least one other person died here. You know, they yeah. told we have met two previous families who lived here because the house is over 100 years old. Wow. And think of that like decades ago, 100 years ago, people were dying at home. It was very yeah. common. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was much more a part of our experience. And so it wasn't so terrifying. I can see, yeah, why a doctor might, I think, as you said, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that children are resilient. I think children feel things very painfully as I did as a teenager, but also it is the truth. It is the truth. And I think sometimes we believe we can hide things from them, but it doesn't mean that those things aren't true. (laughs) Like those things still exist. And you wrote, really beautifully I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about kind of what happened to you with your friendship group um after Mike died because there's a lovely story I think it's how you start the book actually of like you know seeing this like glamorous mom snow like playing in the snow with her kids and you being like we can swear on the show like f you basically yeah, like right. what is this after you're dealing with the grief do you want to just yeah talk sure I will well during grief of course you have no resiliency basically it's like <laughs> I liken it to like having no money in the bank yeah but yeah. you have extra money you can go out and buy like an ice cream or get a manicure you can do good th- things to make yourself feel better but with grief your kind of emotional currency is gone and you mm. have no patience no tolerance for even the slightest thing that can set you off so one January morning, I, I had a huge headache. I had gotten, I'd like one friend who I'd gotten in a giant fight with the night before. I was feeling awful. It was a bright blue sunny day though with snow. And we went out to our local sledding hill, which here in Boston, that's a common thing to do actually. Um, and we went there, but there wasn't quite enough snow and there were tall grasses, some poking through the hill. So my kids were sledding, but one of them, he wasn't able to make it all the way down and he got stuck and he started to get really frustrated. And I saw a big meltdown coming on 
Meanwhile, the only other people at the Hill, there were two other kids and their two moms who looked perfect. One had a ton of makeup on, on a Sunday morning. I was like, who looks so great on a Sunday? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sure I looked awful because I'd probably woken up crying, felt horrible. And then there was another woman there who looked so radiant and beautiful. And that woman was like, oh, haha. hi, can you, can you move your son? Cause he's kind of in the way. Cause the, he was spread out. Like, in the, I mean, the hill's big enough. I'm sure the other kids could have gone around him. Yeah. And she started telling me, I was like, no, he can't, he can't move. Sorry. And then she's, they just started kind of saying it over and over. And then I just blew up at them and I have no idea why I did this, but I'm like, I can't, my husband died. And I was like yelling at them. <laughs> like it was a giant meltdown. I don't even know if you or others listening have seen anyone do that in public. It's, it's very embarrassing <laughs> oh, for everybody. Yeah. No, the grief meltdown is yeah. In different ways. Sometimes you shout, sometimes you scream about something else, but yeah, I think lots of people have been through that. Just my, like you said, I have nothing left in the tank and I'm screaming at someone. I don't really know why. Yeah. It's almost out of body, so, yeah. isn't it? You can sort of it see is. yourself doing it. You just it want to think, stop it, but you can't. So yeah, yeah. then one of them, her name's Melissa, her entire face brightened. And she's like, mine too. <laughs> As if it was like the best thing in the world. And that just made me even more mad. And it turned out <laughs> she came up and talked to me and her husband had died like five years ago and mine had just died a few months ago. And I just started getting more angry. So what I did was I said, okay, whatever. And then I put the kids in the car, made the short drive home, grabbed the iPad and brought it back. So the kid who was frustrated could just play with the iPad in the car and the older kid could keep sledding. He was heavier. So he made it down. I usually didn't do that. You know, when you're desperate, you have to get out the electric the so-called electronic babysitter. Yeah, but yeah. I just want to say like, until my kids were age six and eight, I didn't let them near electronics at all. But after yeah. that, it was all downhill. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so then I came back and to my horror, she approached me, Melissa, because I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to, you know, see mm. her. And almost like I was a wounded animal. She's like, here, here's my name and number. You can, you know, keep this and you can call me. And by the way, there's a widow's group in town. And we're going to meet soon. Wow. And I was like, okay, first reaction, this isn't possible. Our town has 19,000 people. How can there be a group of widows our age? Yeah. And then my second reaction was, okay, well, when are you meeting? And she looked at me and smiled again and said, Valentine's Day. <laughs> and it was just all like too good to be true in a way. So yeah. I kept that piece of paper. I was so terrified of calling her, but I finally called her about a week later. And that was, she's my best friend. Still today, it's now 10 years later, and she still has the bright smile no matter what. <laughs> I found it su it's such a beautiful story, and thank you for saying it, because I just thought, wow, like you said, of all the worlds to collide at that point, like it just was like almost like a film, you know? Like you'd be it like, is, and I, that wouldn't happen. And like one thing I want you to know is that the widows group mostly dispersed, like yeah. as our lives went back to a new normal, we didn't meet more much and we don't need each other in the same way. But I've had a beautiful reunion with two of the widows because their children are also at the local public high school. And my son is as well. And each of us has a boy that's on a soccer team. One's on the freshman team. One's on what's called junior varsity and mine's on the varsity team. And so we've started to go to some games together and the sort of subset hang out together. Oh, so but I thought that was really interesting that you wrote that as well, that for that time you were completely enmeshed in these women's lives and you just helped each other through and I thought you wrote really 
I think it was really honest and refreshing in a way to be like, yeah. And then we didn't need each other because things had changed. And so well, I we, still wanted to be honestly, if I want to be honest with you, I still wanted to be together with them, mm. but somehow I think we all just got too busy. And I did write at the end of the book that it was remarkable, but one weekend as the book was wrapped, I was wrapping it up. I bumped into all of them. There's seven of them. I bumped into all but one, just like wow. by chance, like at the school or yeah. at a community fair in the town. And it was just, wow. So they're still around. Like yeah, I think yeah. once everyone's children grow up and get a job and move out and then people move away, I think they'll be less bumping into each other. But for yeah. now, they're still around. But I thought it was really, yeah, really interesting because the sometimes what we don't speak about enough is how much you need a community. And that's partly why this, this podcast has been successful in the way that it has, because it provides a community that often you don't have locally. You know, you don't have people who've been through what you've been through. And that's... um that's like such an important part of grief to that. Like you said, to see reflected back at you, Oh, well, this person has been through the same thing and there they are smiling. Like, Oh, maybe I will smile again because so much of that first raw grief, right. Which I think you captured really well. It's just like, well, my life's over. Like everything is over. And then slowly sort of finding your way back into life is it's hard to tell someone in the in depths of really, really first grief, like you will live again. I can't explain to you how, but you will. Right. It is really hard. Yeah. And I felt like they, they offered you such a sense of yeah community, which yeah, we don't speak about enough, like how essential that is, especially, I guess, for you with someone with, you know, two small children, like to just have like the way you described just having someone, a place to go where the kids can just run around and no one is expecting you to be fine <laughs> right. or not bring it up or that, you know, they just know how you feel. They just get it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. 
Did you find with other people that they didn't get it? Did you have that experience? They didn't get it. They didn't understand why I was in such a bad mood, why I was just like always so uptight. And people have no idea. You know, it's all the people who say the totally wrong things. Yeah. Like I remember going to work for a work dinner and there were about, you know, 15 people. And then the leader's like, you sit here because you're single. It's like, oh, thanks for reminding me that my husband just died. And then the people who come up to me, this one friend of mine, an older physics professor, I have no idea what I would have done if my wife had died at that time. It's like, oh, thanks. Because I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. (laughs) And they're just over and over again, things like that. It's like, just to make it worse, the people's reaction and people, yeah, nobody understands. I think that reaction is particularly, particularly mad, isn't it? When they go, oh, I don't know what I would have done. You think, as if I knew, like as if I had a manual with, and you didn't, you know, like I, I didn't know. I just, I had no choice. <laughs> like as if, well, I chose this because I knew I could cope with it really well. Like that's not, right. how, that's not how it works. Right. And just, there's a lot of insensitivity. It's not just people that don't know, but that say the wrong things and just make it worse. You know, friends who have never had a tragedy, yeah, they haven't yeah. had a pet that died. Their parents are still alive. Uh, some of those people couldn't I don't know if it was me not being able to deal with them, but I had to drop a lot of those friendships. I mean, I didn't have a lot of them, but I had to drop them because I just couldn't be around people who had the perfect life. That sounds really mean and bitter, but it's what it is. No, I think it's interesting. And I think we talk about it on the show quite a lot if we say like, you're either in the club or you're not. (laughs) So, uh, you know, like if you're in the club, you get it. And I, I think people who, like you said, have had a charmed life, you know, both parents are alive and, their cat is like 45 and you know like it's just they see the world very differently and I think and I think and you know what good for them that's lovely like I wouldn't wish my pain on them but I do think it it can be hard to relate to people I think that's a fair thing to say that who haven't experienced tragedy as you said or something painful and it's quite rare I think the older you get to find someone who really hasn't experienced you know something um it's true but you know especially when I was I was younger and it was like you know if you're like in your twenties, you do meet people who've just like, everything's basically been fine. <laughs> right. I think fine for them. Yeah. Right. And what, what did your dad die after Mike? Was that later? Before actually. Before. Okay. Okay. So how do you compare those griefs? Or is it impossible to compare them? It's hard to compare. Yeah. My dad was everything to me, but he was also at the same time, wasn't part of my daily life. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah. Mike was, I was married to him and he, so it was, not just an emotional attachment, but also like a functional, practical thing. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I think you wrote about that quite well, actually, of just like how much in a marriage, you know, you're two cogs in a machine and you're both doing the, everyone's got their jobs and doing their thing. And yeah, if somebody stops, it's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> right. this only works because you do that and I do this. And that's how the house doesn't fall apart. Um, how old were you when your dad died? I was about 35. Okay. Yeah. And so it was, and it was pancreatic. So did you find out straight away or what was it that, you know, how did you Right. Well, he had this, he also had a stomach ache that wouldn't go away. And it was really weird because it wasn't really a stomach ache, but it was Mm. weird spots of pain that kind of came and went. Yeah. And I remember I was meeting him in another city for a vacation. It wasn't like a vacation when you have tiny little kids, it's not. Yeah. (laughs) It's Yeah. But he was meeting me there and he almost canceled at the last minute because he just wasn't feeling good. And they found it pretty quickly and it was pretty bad. He knew what it was being a, having been a doctor and he mm-hmm. spent some time on a rotation in palliative care for about two years. And it's a really hard job. So at least 
in that sector, he only, you know, you rotate because it's so depressing. So he did yeah. it for a few years. So he, he knew exactly what was coming. It was the opposite of your dad. He had seen this wow. many times. Yeah. He was like in the worst mood ever. I dropped what I was doing when he called me and I was at a conference and I just took the next flight to, well, the next morning. I had a lot of frequent flyer miles at the time <laughs> and he did. What's nice is about his death. Well, he died in the fall when a lot of people aren't traveling to his yeah. city. So I could literally use the miles very cheaply. And I visited him like every three weeks or so for, you know, the three months. And he was in a really bad mood. I never forget when I got there, he was starting to give all his stuff away. It's like, I just gave away my Rolex watch. He had two actually, and he gave them away already. And he's giving away this, giving away that, like trying to hand me stuff. And it's like anger, so much anger. Mm. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? That they're, they're so, um, like you said, it's such an opposite, isn't it? Again, to Mike as well, someone who really did know what was coming and really. Yeah. I didn't tell him because I had, we had the two little kids at the time, 18 months and three and a half years. So he didn't go with me. You know, I had to leave the kids at home with him and he didn't see this happen. So he did had no idea. Whereas my dad prepared me because he died and he insisted on dying at home, which was great. It wasn't as easy of a death because he was in a lot of pain. Like one night his IV fell out for his pain meds and it was just a nightmare. And his common-law wife, Isabella and I, we just didn't know what to do. Well, we called 911 and when they finally arrived, they couldn't, I have no idea why, but they couldn't put it back in. It was something like the emergency people in the ambulances stabilized you, but somehow, I don't even understand why, but the palliative care equipment was different and I don't know why they couldn't help, but it was just a disaster. Finally, the palliative care nurse showed up at like 7 a.m. And that was basically it. I mean, they, then they up your dose and make sure everything's yeah. good. And it was just, the whole thing was really hard. Yeah. Did So did you talk to Mike about that process? But I guess it, no. it's just hard, isn't it? It's just hard to communicate if someone can't see it. Well, the wonderful thing was at Mike's end of life, he was able to go on home hospice where you get a nurse and his yeah. nurse, Jerry, was a fantastic man. He was an older man who was very kind. And I don't know what they talked about, but- Mike did this on his own for a while. And then I had to take over when Mike became, you know, bedridden or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if he knew what was going to happen, but he was comfortable. Yeah. Morphine. Yeah. (laughs) The morphine is really good. (laughs) As anyone who's experienced cancer death and yeah, the morphine is, you know, Mike wasn't the type to complain. Like he was one of those Mm. people who never complained. So I don't totally know um, exactly, you know, what was going on through his mind. I do know at one point, he was in his hospital bed and he was in the guest room. And I, I asked him, so do you know where you are? Mm. He actually was still able to get up. So he got up and looked out the window and he said, yes, I'm in an institution. And at the time we had a um, nurse's aide was here. So dressed in like a nurse's uniform. He's like, because there was the nurse, there was the hospital bed. And I was like, okay, great. Well, do you know who I am? He's like, yes, you're my sister, Rachel. I was like, okay. But actually, I wasn't sad because, yeah. you know, his mind was starting to go as it turns out your body starts to die. The brain can't understand why the circuits are all, you know, the wires are all crossed. And the brain yeah. starts to go as well. So I, he looked fine. He was peaceful. He was talking. And so I didn't get mad. I wasn't even sad for some reason. I was just like, I was just trying to check in of where is he, you know, because yeah. you're saying, how do they feel? You don't know. And apparently he was fine, but he just wasn't. He was at an institution and I was his sister. <laughs> you can laugh it's just like wow where yeah, did that yeah. Come from? yeah yeah I think again if you haven't seen it if you haven't seen someone die it's a really it's such a strange 
experience because you know it, it is so out of normal life and I think if that like, we're talking about people who haven't suffered tragedy or haven't seen that up close it's very hard to communicate like what it feels like it to really is someone. like at one point his nurse came over and I remember Mike sitting up in his bed his hospital bed and he just said something like well the ice cream has gone down the blood vessel to the aorta and now the wood is turning into a tree and and so like nothing made sense what he was saying. Yeah. And those weren't the exact words. I just made that up, but it was yeah, something yeah. that was completely nonsensical. But according to the way Mike was talking, it was a perfectly normal conversation. Yeah. And so stuff like that, you don't know whether <laughs> to laugh or cry. Yeah. I think laugh in that case, because it's like amazing what the mind will do. Oh, incredible. and it was very yeah. technical. Like his conversation was very kind of medical and technical, but it was nothing. It was just gibberish. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. That, that happened with my, um, my father-in-law as well. He had a uh, brain cancer. So obviously very quickly things get confused and he would speak really clearly, but it was not, you know, so you would, your, your brain is like, hang on. Right. It takes a while like to words. figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Right, you're like, right. he, what's he to think about that? I do know what those words mean, but not in that order. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if you, it is a, one of the situations which you have so many with grief of like you're sort of laughing you're sort of crying at the same exactly the same time <laughs> because what else can you do how has it been with the children with remembering him like how have you do you, are you someone who are you a family that talk about him a lot or I guess they were much well younger? I've decided to let the kids guide you know I've okay. seen other families where they really push it a little too much yeah like we're at the child's you know bar mitzvah it's all all seems to be about the okay yeah but yeah. you know in this case, I sort of let them be the guide, but I remember clearly where we had Mike's picture with Max when he was a baby and with our dog in the living room, like overlooking. And I got to a point where I was ready to not have the picture there anymore because I wanted to remember him on my own terms, not have him be every time I walk by the picture, think about yeah, it. Yeah. It's a good stage to be at. Yeah. So I'd ask the kids, so are we ready to move this picture away? And one of them was like, sure, no problem. And the other one just started squirming. I was like, okay, no problem. We'll just leave it here. Yeah. <laughs> like every six months. And finally he was ready. I could take the picture away. So later on, you know, once in a while, I'll say something, but not often, maybe, you know, a few times a year, I'll say, yeah. I'll say something, but I leave it up to them. So if they're ready to talk or they want more info and rarely they say something like once like, huh, this haircut, I look like Mike. And I'll just kind of smile. And recently they have a, a Kicks for Cancer. It's a big fundraiser for ovarian cancer, actually for a blood test to find out a development of an early warning blood test. And it's a giant fundraiser. It raises like a couple hundred thousand a year. And it's a soccer game and a bunch of lacrosse games and mostly soccer. And what you do is you get a bright pink shirt. The opposing teams get a teal colored shirt, which is like a blue. But on the back, you get the name of someone. And so each son eventually got put the name Mike on the back and it's sort of nice to know that they're thinking about him yeah yeah it's that's lovely because I think it is hard when they are so young when something like that happens it's a, it's a lot to deal with and we've spoken a lot on the show like if you lose someone when you're a teenager often what happens is you don't really deal with it till you're in your 30s that's what happened to me because right and I know and you know sort of naught to 10 is another set of circumstances if you lose a parent at that age because you you don't really know what forever means under 10, you know, it's a very complicated um, thing to conceive of, like someone is well, gone forever. It's true. But in this case, I put a lot of thought into it, scientific, if you will. Yeah, and I yeah. tried to do the very best I could. Like 
we don't have family we're close to that lives anywhere nearby, you know, so I followed their lead. There was a family, um, Jessica and Veronica, they're sisters, but Jessica was our babysitter for a while and then became an incredibly close family friend. So I built on that and I'd send the kids to Jessica's house. She lived with her mom and dad and, you know, let them nurture the kids. So I just made sure that they had what they needed. Yeah. And in this case, I want to say, I'm not saying it's a perfect world, but Mike got sick when they were ages four and six mm. and he kind of gradually departed their life. And I remember I was always checking in with them. Like one time, Mike, okay, Mike, why don't you go outside and keep an eye on the kids, which wasn't really because he just sat in a chair and fell asleep. Yeah. You know, so he wasn't like big, you know, so he sort of slowly moved away from their life. And I think it was a very gradual process. Mm. I remember one time he came down to the dinner table. He had a huge headache. He looked around, put his head down, fell asleep. A couple minutes later, woke up and went back upstairs. And I said to the kids, so is your dad sick or is he normal? I was just trying to see where they're at. Yeah. And they looked at each other, you know, as if to kind of check. And then they said, normal. (sighs) Wow. So I just, you know, I didn't try to, you know, eventually what I realized was it was my reaction, like the surviving parent or the parent who's not sick that controlled the way that they would react or what was going on in their daily lives. And it took a lot of kind of self-discipline to not, of course, I fell apart in front of them, but, you know, to not to do the best I could with them, if that makes sense. So I think we did pretty well. I mean, there's definitely stress. I know things will come out later as they grow to become a man, but I'm here for them. And yeah. I just try to make, that's the message I try to give. Oh, yeah. I mean, what a thing to go through. Like, it's extraordinarily difficult, whatever the circumstances. And um, there's an amazing British grief psychotherapist, Julia Samuel, who we quote a lot on the show because she's amazing. But I spoke to her and she said, you know, the, the biggest the biggest thing that can um, help children is the surviving parent, how the surviving parent deals with it. Like, that is what will enable them to get through to cope you know if that surviving right. parent is strong and is stable they'll you know they'll be sad they'll be difficult it's painful exactly I totally okay. believe that and the other yeah. thing was my dad he was really big on feminism when I was growing up and he always would course correct like if I had said you know I want to be a nurse he'd say no why don't you say you want to be a doctor you want to run the hospital or you run run <laughs> all the hospitals in America <laughs> or you know he would tell me I have to be able to support myself Mm. and not rely on any man. And all of that was really helpful because I had the income to support myself. Actually, it was a bit of a struggle initially because to work full time and be able to keep everything moving at home. But, you know, I could have the babysitters take the kids to my conferences with the babysitter. I was very privileged in that I had a good job that paid well, but I followed my dad's advice. And so that helped, right? Because stability is number one. Like there's some families, the dad dies, the mom has to sell the house, move somewhere else. You sometimes hear horror stories. Families have to send the kids away to live with other relatives. Like, I mean, so I think stability as to your point is number one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and yeah, you know, it's, I think what you went through and what you cope with, especially with your job being as high pressured as it, as it is, you know, and being such a difficult, extraordinary thing that you do extraordinary and the things that you then went on to do after Mike as well. well like I won't you- sugarcoat it. I mean, I considered quitting my job. Yeah, just, yeah. I'll just say that it's definitely a tough road. 
Oh God, yeah, extraordinary. Which is why I think it's amazing. And no one would have blamed you if you had. Do you know what I mean? If you had gone, I can't do this, this <laughs> right. is too hard. No one would have been like, oh my God, what a quitter. We would have been like, yeah, fair enough. Like, it's really hard. It's a really hard journey. And to then go on to do what you what you did. When you were writing the book, how did it feel to go back to those scenarios? Was it okay to come back to it? Or It was, wow, it was incredibly cathartic. Mm. Like that means just pouring out the grief. And it was so therapeutic. I can't even explain that. So it was both really upsetting, but somehow it just felt so good. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, it's just yeah. like when you have the major cry or just taking all your blah and putting that out there, it just felt good actually. But it was, it was tough. Did you feel like maybe there was some grief that had to get parked because you had the kids and you had the job and then 10 years down the line, you're writing and you can like go, oh. Like not necessarily, but I think yeah. to really grieve, you have to grieve over and over again in many different ways. You know, yeah. there's, I just have one funny way to explain it, that yeah. in the widow world, like you have to start dating again, even if you don't yeah. want to, even if you <laughs> never want to get married again, it's fine. But if you don't date again, that part of your grief of being a couple, of being together with someone, it won't come out. It won't get triggered. Wow. That's really so, interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. Have, we have a scientific term. You'll have to explore all corners of parameter space. <laughs> I know that means anything, but it just means that all scenarios, you kind of have to go through them again. Like think about the first Christmas or the first birthday. It's yeah, traumatic, yeah. Yeah. but there are other littler things that you still need to try. You need to, or you're just going to get triggered later in life. Yeah. So that's the sort of widow thing in dating, but writing the book was helpful like that, right? It's sort of like I'd already finished grieving, but okay, now I'm going to grieve again in a different way. And it was just very healing. Yeah, that's really interesting, I think, to put it that way, of, especially in that scientific terms of like, you just have to keep going. You just have to keep, yeah, re-grieving, re-looking. And I think I had never thought about that in terms of widowhood. Obviously, I haven't experienced that. Right. If you don't, if you don't do that, it's like avoiding Christmas, isn't it? It's like you've got, you, you have right. to do it. Well, it'll <laughs> come later Then later when you are ready to date. You'll yeah. start dating again and then it'll, it might be a disaster because it'll trigger all the, yeah, yeah. the grief that you hadn't gone through yet. Yeah. And how was that then when you, when you did, I know you wrote about it in the book. Like a disaster. <laughs> I mean, that, that might be true for anyone dating, whether you're dating, yeah. whether you're, you know, a woman dating a woman or a man dating a man or a man dating a woman or whatever. I just think it's always awkward, especially as you get more baggage and you get older, whether or not grief's a thing, you know, yeah, this yeah. was especially baggage having the two little kids and a dead spouse. It's a lot to, to tell people about. I, it just didn't go very well at all. I write about one widower. I thought I should date a widower because things were very awkward, but with a widower, then they know the same thing. Yeah. But this particular widower, I don't think he had, he didn't know, but he hadn't really grieved properly. He had a therapist, but I don't think he had a lot of people like me that he could just chat with. Yeah. And as we were dating, he grieved more and more and he seemed to be going in a spiral down and uh, yeah, we just had to break up because he wasn't, he didn't have anyone he could joke with or fool, like we would, something would happen and he would say, well, it's not like anyone's dying. And then we would just burst out laughing because it was so yeah, funny. Yeah. Yeah. But I just don't think he had someone. And then he'd be like, you remind me of my wife. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I don't remind you of your wife because she had a different hair color and she was a lot older. <laughs> or, you know, it's like, I was like, yeah, I have um, dark nail polish on because in winter I like to wear dark and in summer like pink. And he's like, oh, right. I know all about that because my wife always. And it's like, right. it just got more and more like that, which. Yeah. So uh, that was a problem. Um, it's just awkward. 
you know it's funny though isn't it because like you said we're we're always looking for that community as as people in grief and people who get it and then you found someone who got it but like they got it like wrong (laughs) i guess i think it was helpful for i hope it was helpful for him like yeah i'm sure it sounds like i hope that he was able to grieve again because his wife had died five years earlier yeah yeah um so there's that there's another one i don't know what it was just not right but it was um my son had a friend who had a divorced dad and the dad was dropping the son off. I was like, Oh, there's a cute guy. It was just sort of remembering like what a cute, you know, it was good. Right. Like it means you're getting better if the men start looking good again. (laughs) And he started to flirt a little. And then he somehow said, Hey, maybe I could come over for dinner or something. And then, you know, he brought me some wine and a bottle and some flowers. And, you know, we went out for a while, but it was more like, I write, I think I might say this is book, but when we finally kissed, it was like, I would think it would be like kissing my brother and there was yeah, like no chemistry. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. okay, that's not, it just it was really awkward though. And then he broke up with me and I felt bad, but I mean, <laughs> it was obviously for the best. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you, and you did remarry right much later. I did. Then an yeah. amazing thing happened because just as I'd broken up with the widower, I was like, I'm done. This is just not. Cause even my kid was like one night day um, I'd come home crying and he's like, well, why are you doing this? If it's so upsetting. <laughs> And I was like, duh, why am I doing this? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just not going to do this. Like, I don't, you know, uh, I think a lot of people realize this at some point. So I'm like, I'm just so done. So I broke up with the guy. And then a few weeks later, I was on my way to a conference, an amateur astronomy conference where I was the keynote speaker. And it was the same astronomy club where I had first got my start in astronomy as a child, belonging to my dad, belonging to a club and us going out to a star party where these amateur astronomers showed us the stars. Only this was the nationwide one in Canada where all the clubs, parts of the clubs or the leadership go to an annual general meeting. So I was on my way to this meeting. And so I get to the meeting and I was hosted by a widow, by the way, because they don't have money. So they don't put you up in a hotel, but you right. bill it with someone. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, I think this would be a good match. So I stayed <laughs> with this spunky widow. She was amazing. We sent, stayed up so late talking at night. But the first she picked me up from the airport on a Friday, went to her house to drop stuff off. Then we went to the reception, which would be right before my keynote talk. And I'm not making this up, but I got there and I looked across the room and I saw this tall, dark, handsome man. And I was just like, wow, who is that man? I have to meet him. <laughs> I just felt like uh, so compelled to meet this man. I had no wow. idea who he was. He was really suntan though. And he was wearing a white shirt, really tall. He's like six foot four. <laughs> And so the weekend kind of went on, but I didn't meet him. And I was like, well, everyone, as the keynote speaker, it was also my job to chat with people. You know, the amateur astronomers, they can ask me questions or they told me about their telescopes. It's pretty impressive. Like one of them had a telescope in Chile on a telescope farm that he controlled remotely. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff they want to share. (laughs) I was waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally, one day at lunch, my widow host had to do some errands because it's a lot to take care of someone and help organize the meeting. She's like, do you mind if I take a few hours to go do some chores. I was like, sure, sure. So I got a bit lost, but I got to the cafeteria late. And as I walked into the cafeteria, there was the man. (laughs) He was going back to get a salad. And he's like, really shy. (laughs) He's like, oh, hi, uh, Dr. Seeker. Great talk. I was like, nice to meet you. And so we went to have lunch together. We sat down and all I could do is think, wow, I finally get to meet this guy. And then (laughs) I just beamed a smile. 
and the rest is history. That's amazing. That's amazing. What a hopeful story. That's really, really And the cute thing was that all the people in the astronomy club who knew me because I was the guest speaker and I was a professional and they knew him because he was president of the Toronto Center. A lot of people witnessed this actually. And it's a really (laughs) sweet thing now, like looking back, we're married now. He adopted the boys. The boys are now basically grown up. One of them's 18 and at college and one's age 16, but it's been a huge, huge joy. And huge happiness for me. And I'm still so happy. Sarah, I mean, what a perfect place to end our wonderful chat that everything you've been through and yeah, to find happiness, there is hope. There is always hope. And I think that comes across in your book as well of like how improbable science is and how, you know, your job is to look for these tiny exoplanets on the edge of our world, which I'm not explaining properly, I know. Um, And you know, the, the improbability that in grief, you can feel like everything is lost. And actually, you know, that, that isn't the case. That's not the world. Right, the right. And I in. do. Yes. And the way I like to describe the book is it's about the journey of inner space. Mm. You know, my personal journey that a lot of people share. Yeah. And it's also about the journey of exploration of outer space. And so it does try to give that message of hope. Yeah. And it does. It really, I, you know, and I am not a science person at all. And I found it fascinating. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me today and remembering Mike and your dad, David, and we didn't get to Minnie Mae, but a shout out to Minnie Mae as well. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at Prof Sarah Seeger, that's P-R-O-F Sarah S-A-R-A, Seeger S-E-A-G-E-R. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. Sarah's book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, a memoir, is available to buy now. I said I can't recommend it enough. It's a really, really beautiful book about grief and the galaxy and planets. Uh, We recorded the show remotely. Sarah from America, me from my living room. The music was provided by the Glue Ensemble. The show was edited by Kate Holland. And remember, you are not alone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 